This week, the truth of cruelty-free products, uh, primer for your 2016 Halloween season, and a fun, fun trip to the magical world of virtual reality. Plus, I've got your September music roundup and a Masthead exclusive interview. All that and more coming up right now. Skeletons and shivers down your spine Shrieking skulls will shock your soul Seal your doom tonight Hello and welcome to The Masthead, the official radio companion to the Navigator newspaper. I am your host and VR trooper, Brendan Barlow, and this is the Arts and Features edition of The Masthead. As per usual, a little housekeeping right off the top. You can connect with me at the show at any time on Twitter with hashtag MastheadRadio and by email at themastheadradio at gmail.com. I check them both often and will respond as quickly as possible. If possible, I'll respond during the show. Uh, you can also call the station and leave your comments with the wonderful folks here. I will share the feedback that we get um, as as it comes in. If you've missed an episode of The Masthead, you can find all of our past shows on iTunes or whatever podcasting app you like to use or by heading to themastheadradio.wordpress.com. Uh, I'm flying solo in the studio this week, but that hasn't stopped the amazing Diana Pearson from putting together an exclusive interview with author Michael B. McDonald. Plus, she brings us the first recorded segment of Dirty in the Nav. So you've got those things to look forward to coming up a little bit later. So this week, I'm going to get you ready for Halloween with my 2016 Halloween Primer, which is my guide to movies, books, and podcasts guaranteed to get the hairs on the back of your neck standing up. I've also got your September Music Roundup, which takes a look at the five best albums released in September. I'll be playing songs from each during the show, so stay tuned for that. Also, we've got a pretty packed show today, so let's just get right into it and take a look at what's trending in arts and entertainment. Alright, first up, uh, former child star and current lunatic Corey Feldman strikes again, um, so he's back on today. The Goonies actor returned to the NBC Morning Show on Thursday to perform a message song, Take a Stand, from his new album, Angelic, to the core, and that is two as a number. Uh, the song, by the way, is for America. Feldman says, who is dressed in a white and gold, who is dressed in white and gold, and told uh, the host Tamron Hall before performing, "We're at a time right now, and the world really needs to focus on peace and love and tolerance, especially with all the bullying. So this is about the government. This is about the race. This is about the United States." Uh, Feldman also addressed the backlash for his "Go for It" performance on today last month. If you didn't catch that, I recommend it. Um, and said that the kind words he received from Pink and Kesha and Michael Jackson's daughter Paris Jackson and his friends helped him deal with the bullies. Um, I'm not letting the bullies get to us, he said, explaining why he returned to today. A lot of people get hate in the beginning because they we're doing something new. It hasn't been done before, but it's all about innovation and being an artist. <laughs> and we can't be afraid to share our art. So, I'm going to play a section of this uh, of this performance his outfit is amazing he's wearing um sort of gold jumpsuit with a white and gold hood uh this is cory feldman by the way from the lost boys from the goonies you know him and this is what he's up to now in case you were wondering
inside a dream Ignorance is blissful Feeling quite serene Cause I choose to ignore The suffering abroad Doesn't mean it's not happening Just means I turned it off If I can't stop all the pain So there's a little taste of what Corey Feldman uh, is his new song called uh, I've forgotten already. Take a stand. It feels a lot like if anyone has been uh, watching The Office as much as I have, the episode when Andy tries to create a, a message song uh, and and sings a song from the point of view of a little girl uh, <laughs> calling for the end of the war in Iraq. So it's nice and heavy-handed. Uh, you should check that out. I'm sure it's around. Next up. Uh, Star Wars producers fined $2 million for crushing Harrison Ford's leg. As a film series, Star Wars will likely outlive us all, but the saga of Han Solo's broken leg finally concluded this week with the production company behind The Force Awakens being fined almost $2 million after violating workplace safety rules. Um, this is the fun part of filmmaking that everyone wants to know about. It's the safety rules. Uh, while filming Star Wars sequel in Britain in 2014, Harrison Ford was badly injured when prosecutors say a hydraulic door on the Millennium Falcon uh, came down millimeters from his face and crushed his leg like a blunt-edged guillotine. I'm not completely sure. I guess he was standing? All right. In the original film, if there had been a door, it would have been closed with a pulley and a stagehand just closing it, Ford recounted on a talk show last year. But we had lots of money and technology, so they built an effing great hydraulic door which closed at light speed the accident which prosecutors compared to a car collision said that it could have killed the 71 year old actor broke ford's tibia and fibula and delayed the filming by two weeks on wednesday british court fined uh, foodles productions reported uh, reportedly named to hide filming sites from fans um, 1.6 million after the disney subsidiary pleaded guilty to two criminal charges of failing to protect workers earlier this year might sound like a major penalty but they got off, got off pretty easy if you think about how much money star wars made which if you forgot was quite literally all of the money Next up, for Pink Floyd fans, Roger Waters announced the Us and Them tour. Uh, days after playing the Desert Trip Festival in Indio, California, Roger Waters is announcing a new multi-state tour. This is his first since the 2010-2013 tour of The Wall and starts in May of next year with stops in more than 30 cities in the U.S. and Canada. Not really a multi-state tour if it's in Canada. Anyway, uh, Waters is named, named it Us and Them uh, after the song he wrote for Pink Floyd's 1973 album, The Dark Side of the Moon. He told NPR Music, its themes about the haves and have-nots are more relevant and topical than ever. Um, as he says, I was listening to the song the other day, and there's a line which goes, with, without, and who'll deny, that's what the fighting's all about. Uh, and the answer to the question is this, almost everyone. Almost everyone will deny that with slash without is what the fighting is all about. My contention is that it is. Um, that's why my new tour is going to be called Us and Them. It's a, it's specifically about that line. You can hear more from Waters about the tour by pressing the play button at the top of the page that I am currently reading, which doesn't really apply if you're listening to the show. So, sorry about that. Um, anyway, there you go. If you're a fan of 
him. The Us and Them tour starts May 26, 2017 in Kansas City and ends October 28th in Vancouver. Tickets go on sale October 21st. I'm assuming that means this coming October. So I would get on that pretty quick. It seems like something that would sell out quickly. Um, one stop in in, uh, Van- in in British Columbia, which is the one in uh, Vancouver. is also in Edmonton, Winnipeg, Montreal, Ottawa, Quebec, and two shows in Toronto. So get yourself on board if that's the kind of thing that you are interested in spending a whole bunch of money on. Uh, right for another... This is a fun one. It's a toy for adults as far as I'm concerned because the Beatles' Yellow Submarine will live in your house with a new Lego set. The only person alive that probably has the means to really live in a yellow submarine beneath the waves with his friends on board is James Cameron. But the good news is that the rest of us will soon be able to build our own little version of that beloved vessel in our homes with the newest Lego set, the Beatles Yellow Submarine. This story coming from Nerdist.com. We first learned about the groovy new 550 set uh, piece set at Mashable and beyond the uh, actual iconic yellow sub from the classic 1968 animated musical. The collection will include all four Beatles and a Jeremy figure, aka the Nowhere Man, Fudd. Uh, this latest addition to the Lego line resulted from the company's Lego Ideas program where fans could build and propose new designs. It turns out that there are a lot of Beatle fans out there. Who knew? <laughs> Uh, Lego even put together a fun short promotional video which you can have a look at on YouTube. Uh, The Beatles Yellow Submarine set will hit stores uh, at the start of next month on November 1st. It will retail in the U.S. for $59.99. God, Lego is expensive. Plus, it's Beatles, so I'm sure it's even more expensive for that reason. Um, There you go. I feel like that's definitely one for the grown-ups who grew up playing with Lego and listening to the Beatles. It's a weird cross-section of people. Um, I mean, it's it, looking at the set, it is fun and colorful and kind of goofy, but a little kid is going to have no context for that at all. So it's definitely an adult's toy. Enjoy it, adults. Also, buy it. I mean, if you have that kind of cash, buy it. I don't see any reason why not. It's pretty cool. I'd like to build it. Let's move on, shall we? Uh, the star of a movie that I've never seen, Shailene Woodley from uh, The Fault in Our Stars, breaks her silence after being arrested for criminal trespassing during a protest. This is great. Uh, So, Shailene Woodley is speaking out after being arrested in North Dakota. Uh, An Instagram post on Tuesday afternoon, uh, the actress continued her fight against the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, One day, baby, we'll sing our poetry, the words dripping from our tongues wet with ripened patience, she wrote on social media. Uh, And the lyrics, the sweet fruit born from the seeds our aging hands are now sowing with a bunch of hashtags. I'm not really sure what that is, but that's what she wrote. The message comes after the actress's rep confirmed to E! News on Monday that she had been released from Morton County Jail. Uh, earlier in the day, the Fault in Our Stars star was peacefully protesting the Dakota Access Pipeline when she was arrested for trespassing. Followers of the actress were able to watch it all unfold on Facebook Live when Shailene recorded everything that was transpiring. Uh, I don't know if you guys just heard me, but I was walking back to my RV, which is right there, so that we can go back to camp peacefully, and they grabbed me by the jacket and said I was not allowed to continue. Uh, She told her viewers, they had giant guns and batons and zip ties, and they're not letting me go. When Shailene tried to ask a cop a question, police responded, we can't talk right here, but you're going to be placed under arrest for criminal trespassing. Um, I I gotta say, I have a lot of respect when an actress or actor or famous person really puts themselves on the line for something like this. They obviously, she believes in it. She's not worried that about going to prison. She's not worried about that kind of thing. She's, she's standing up for the things that she believes in. And I think that's amazing. 
Um, so good for her. I think that that's great. It sucks that she's gotten arrested, but I, I kind of admire uh, the idea that a celebrity is sort of really staying on board with her own her own values. Um, and if you're wondering, uh, Ansel Elgort and John Green have both uh, had comments about what happened. So let's have a look at that. Uh, people from all over the world watched Shailene Woodley get arrested. Um, Fault in Our Stars, Ansel Elgort weighed in on Twitter and directed fans to read up on what the 24-year-old was protesting. That's good. You should read up on that, especially if you're an American. Uh, but I mean, in Canada, too, we see issues with pipelines all the time. It's it's good to see how these things unfold and to have a historical uh, look at it. So do that. Meanwhile, author John Green wrote, uh, at Shailene Woodley walks the walk. I deeply admire her determined and passionate activism. Absolutely. I think it's great. She's also received support from Mark Ruffalo and Maggie Q publicly, which is pretty cool. Um, good. I'm glad to see people who continue to, uh, to walk the walk as he put it. And finally, uh, in the interest of scaring the bejesus out of everybody, uh, Brian Cox claims that we have not met aliens because they are dead and humans are next. Now, if you don't know who Brian Cox is, he is a wonderfully charming uh, physicist from the UK. I'm just going to play this little clip that they have from this. Oh, no, hold on. I'm not going to play this. It's about ancient aliens. Forget it. Never mind. I'm not going to play that at all. But the star of TV's Wonders of the Universe believes that eventually every civilization kills themselves off, which is why no beings are yet to make dominant impact on the universe. Professor Cox was basing his argument around the Fermi paradox, which questions why humans are yet to make contact with aliens. In 1950, physicist Enrico Fermi, the creator of the world's first nuclear reactor, came up with a paradox which says that due to the age and size of the universe, there is bound to be a civilization much more advanced than ours, but why haven't they contacted us? The solution, many scientists argue, is once the civilization reaches a certain size, it eventually kills itself off, either through war with advanced weapons or natural disaster. Um, Mr. Cox elaborated on this theory, claiming that the reason it is the reason that we have not seen any strong evidence for extraterrestrials. He told Sunday Times, one solution to the Fermi paradox is that it's not possible to run a world that has the power to destroy itself uh, and that, the ne that needs global collaborative solutions to prevent that. It may be that the truth, uh, sorry, that the growth of science and engineering inevitably outstrips the development of political expertise, leading to disaster. The former keyboard player for 90s band D-Ream then warned, we could be approaching that position. However, other scientists disagree with the Fermi paradox and believe that the Earth was the first planet in the entire universe to host complex life, according to a recent study. The universe has been around for roughly 13.8 billion years, and modern-day humans have existed for 200,000 years, just 0.0145% of all time. Doesn't that just point out how insignificant we all really are? Oof. Uh, well, this may lead some to the conclusion that we're pretty late to the party. A group of esteemed researchers claim we could actually be well ahead of the curve and that advanced civilizations may not emerge for another trillion years. Avi Loeb of the Harvard, Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, the lead author, said, if you ask when is life most likely to emerge, you might na naively say now. But we find that the chance of life grows much higher in the distant future. The research says that any form of life uh, that any form of life became possible around 30 million years after the Big Bang, and scientists predict the existence will continue to thrive for another 10 trillion years until all of the stars in the universe have extinguished. Holy 
Hell, Loeb and the team calculated that when life is likely to evolve between those two markers and found that the lifespan and size of stars is the most significant factor. Anything bigger than our sun would be too hot to support life, and anything younger would be too small. So there you go. Uh, Brian Cox thinks that maybe all the aliens are already dead, and everyone else thinks that maybe they don't exist at all. That's pretty fun. Uh, if you haven't seen Brian Cox's work, I strongly recommend it. He's been he's made a few appearances on the show QI and does a really great job on that. He's also done uh, a breakdown of the science of Doctor Who. So if you're a fan of uh, of Doctor Who and you want to hear some some science that'll make your head hurt, I strongly recommend that as well. Okay, that is what's trending in the news. So that means that it's time to have a look at uh, at some music well at one song anyway we're not i'm not last week i realized that i made the mistake or not last week the last time i did this i made the mistake of playing a big block of five songs and rather than doing that this time i'm going to spread them out throughout the whole episode so the first album uh, so here if you don't remember how this works every at the end or once a month goes by i will go through that month and pick my five favorite albums released that month and share them in the paper that happened this month or that happened for September, and that's what we're talking about right now. These are the five best albums released in September, starting with Bonnie Vare's 22 A Million. Bonnie Vare was someone that I had admittedly written off as another sort of folk singer in a never-ending sea of folk singers. Uh, I have, of course, since learned that this assumption was completely incorrect, um, tw- especially with 22 A Million. It is a bizarre album, and yet one that I just can't stop listening to. Combining elements of folk music with synthesizers and auto-tuners, Ivera has created a genuinely interesting album with this one. And, of course, that means I'm going to share one of the songs with you. I think that that is the best thing to do right now. Um, so this song is called 21 Moonwater from his new album, 22 A Million. Enjoy.
That was 21 Moon Water from Bonnie Iver's new album, 22 A Million. It's a weird one, but I do recommend checking it out, especially if you're a fan of his already. It's just more of uh, his sort of distinct style that will surely appeal to people that already like him. And if you don't really know him or you had written him off like I had, don't. Just get it and listen to it. It's good stuff. All right, we're going to move right along with this new story. Comedian Deborah DiGiovanni is returning to Nanaimo this October. If you don't remember Deborah DiGiovanni just from her name, you might remember her from what I remember her from, which is the uh, Fantastic Much Music program video on trial, which featured comedians making fun of terrible music videos for half an hour or so uh, every every so often. Um, so if, if that jogs your memory, great. So let's get into it. Award-winning comedian, uh, Canadian comedian, Deborah DiGiovanni will be performing at the Port Theatre on Tuesday, October 18th at 8pm. The event will run for about two hours and fellow comedian Kyle Bottom will be opening the show. I'm not familiar with Kyle. Maybe we'll find something of his uh, in a minute here. So, Giovanni's routine is set to include anecdotes and observations on her daily life over the past few years. Since moving from Toronto to Los Angeles in 2013, Giovanni Giovanni, sorry, has found herself in a place starting over, all while experiencing major culture shock, and she has a lot to say about it. Canada is so great, oh god, we are so great, seems to be Giovanni's current motto, and she's excited to be returning to this great land once again, to bring many laughs and many happy, sweaty hugs for fans. Uh, audience of Giovanni's comedy show can expect a true, honest, and engaging routine. Giovanni believes that comedy is one art form that has the most connection with the audience and is excited to laugh over personal stories with her Nanaimo audience during and after her show. Giovanni said that plan, she plans to greet fans after her set with hellos, pictures, and hugs because that's the dessert of the show, as she puts it. Dan Quinn, organizer of Digiovanni's Vancouver Island Lower Mainland date, says that he's excited to be bringing Digiovanni back to Nanaimo for the first time since 2014 because she is, quote, a total sweetheart uh, and is a very similar persona on and off the stage. Well, not the type of comic whose work is subject uh, is subject to extensive censorship. Digiovanni wants Nanaimo showgoers to be aware that the act is somewhat adult-oriented. I do use language, and I do talk about some adult things, Digiovanni says, because I'm an adult. Digivani also wants anyone nervous to attend a comedy show to understand that she is never going to pick on anyone in the crowd during the show. That's not fun for anyone, she says, and we're just there to laugh and have a nice evening. Debra Digivani's uh, tickets for the show are $30 each and available in person at the Port Theatre box office by phone at 250-754-8550 or at the Port Theatre's website, porttheatre.com. Now, if you're kind of wondering what to expect or what kind of um, comedian she is, if you still don't remember who she is, uh, which is crazy to me, I'm going to play something from her. I believe her album was called Single Awkward Female, but I could be wrong about that. Anyway, this track, this piece of comedy is called Cougar. I'm going to play that and maybe try and find something from Kyle Bottom as well to help you make uh, informed decisions about the comedy that you watch. Here you go. I can't. I want to be a cougar. Like I can't wait to be a cougar. I'm like, what? What? How old do you have to be to be a cougar? Like, is there a is there a test that I have to take to become a cougar? Because if there is a cougar test, I hope there's no running. Jesus Christ! I fucking. <laughs> if I show up for my cougar test and there's like an obstacle course, I'm done. That's it. I'm out. Tell the world my story. Go on without me. Thank you very much. It's too much. And I said that once at a show. I was like, I want to be a cougar. And then there was a cougar in the crowd. All right, a woman, not an animal. Uh, but she was she was wearing leopard print. Not the point of the story. The thing is, she screams out to me, 
She's like, hey, Deborah, you're doing it wrong, Deborah. You don't chase the young men, you trap them. That's what she said. And I was like, that's a weird thing to say, isn't that the thing? But then I thought about it. I went back to my hotel room and I was like, what would a cougar trap look like? You know what I mean? What would that? So I got a little piece of paper and a pen and stuff, started making some sketches, you know what I mean? And I got a protractor out of my purse. I don't know why I had it in my purse, I really don't. Normally I use it for stabbing today. Circles, boom, this is it, yeah. And I started thinking, I'm like, what if I, like, what if I dug a hole, like a deep, big, wide hole, do you know what I mean? And then I covered it up with leaves and branches and stuff. Some foliage, you know what I mean, to disguise it. <laughs> Used a skateboard as a lure, oh. <laughs> Put a little pizza pop on the end or something. <laughs> Yeah. See what I get, yeah! yeah. Little baseball cap goes up. I'm like, I got one! Yeah. But that's not gonna happen because I don't fucking shovel. I don't shovel. All right, a little, uh, a little taste of Deborah DiGiovanni's comedy, and I did find um, Kyle Bottom doing five minutes. I'm not gonna play the whole five minutes. Just a little sample, just to show you what it's all about. This is from 2014. So this is the fellow who will be opening Deborah the show with Deborah DiGiovanni. Let's have a listen together. sample from Kyle Bottoms Comedy. So there you go. Once again, if you're interested in tickets for that show, they are $30 and available from the Port Theater, either in person, by phone, or on the web. I will see you there if you're there, if or maybe not. Um, we're going to carry on. I mentioned before that I took a little trip to uh, to virtual into virtual reality, uh, and this is something I want to share. So this is my trip to the VR zone. Uh, so we've all seen them, the ridiculous-looking headsets that promise deeply immersive gameplay experience, so long as you are willing to part with at least $1,200 in the case of the HTC Vive, which is the one to get, in my opinion. Uh, I've oft seen these virtual reality headsets and been cautiously optimistic about their lofty promises, but have no, have neither the extra income nor the connections to try them out for myself. Uh, but now, a week or two ago now, uh, I was invited over to Cloudhead Studios in Qualicum to sample the critically acclaimed VR release, The Gallery Call of the Star Seed, as well as a few other games that they had uh, sort of available in their library of games. So eager to take my first steps into a virtual world, I eagerly accepted and made my way to their studio. Of course I did. What I didn't, of course, do was interview anyone there, because of course not. Um, so for those who are unaware, Cloudhead Studios is a game developer based in Qualicum. That's right. It's right here on Vancouver Island. A VR developer who boasts being 
one of the only VR developers to produce a game for the HTC Vive that has a substantial budget of around $1 million. Most games are kind of smaller and made to be enjoyed as sort of a to show you the novelty, but no one is really putting the effort and work into creating a real experience on VR except for Cloudhead Studios. Um, there are a couple of others, but Cloudhead is sort of among these sort of top tier of VR developers. Um, so... In, yeah, in general, these games are simple and casual, but Clouded was not content to keep it simple and has produced something that feels like a real and fully fleshed out game. I was able to play two chapters of episode one of The Gallery uh, during my time there, and I believe, and what I saw made me want to shell out the cash and get a Vive headset. Um, so as far as I can, as far as I remember, I played the first and the last chapters of the game, one that really demonstrated the exploration and puzzle-solving aspects and showed you how smooth and interactive the motion controls were. Uh, the other showed a bit more of a cinematic element of the game, uh, and I don't want to give much away, but the sensation of being in the world of the gallery is something really bizarre, and, uh, and particularly if you're like me and haven't experienced this before, it, it, it just, it's a really strange thing to... To kind of come to terms with and, and one of the reasons is the HTC Vive which I used um, had uses two sensors in the room that allows you to move around the room as opposed to just sort of sitting in one place and and moving in your head so you can move you have a 360 degree room space as long as you have the space to do that to move around in um, so Everything in the game feels extremely tactile and you really feel like you're able to interact with the, the world around you. So like little moments like the the introduction to the game is, is sort of teaching you how everything works and you're, you're asked to go to these pillars and break bottles and just little things like that really feel quite satisfying and real and you do get this sense like you're having an impact on the world even though it's none of it is real. Um, one moment that really stuck out to me was in the beginning I came across uh, some abandoned fireworks on the beach and an abandoned bonfire and my first thought was well do they explode and I threw them into the fire and sure enough they explode um, the cinematic moments that I mentioned begins on a platform that ascends quickly towards this massive floating structure I have no idea what the story context is but I was immediately blown away by the very real feeling of motion and scale uh, and it is that is something that is tricky consciously you're aware that you're standing still but the game does manage to trick you and think that you're moving and a few times I had to stop and catch my balance. Um, it, it's a really tricky thing to kind of to balance up in your head. Um, it, so credit where credit is due. This is an extremely immersive experience. I was really surprised by the experience, like by what I experienced in the headset. Um, but it's worth mentioning that you're never not aware that you're wearing a headset. The controllers are very obvious in your hands. It's it's not a bad thing or a good thing. It's just something to know. Uh, you know, we're not jacking into the matrix or anything like that. Uh, so in truth, the gallery is a stunning example of the potential that VR presents uh, and one that does force me to reevaluate my skepticism on the platform. Of course, with its current price tag, VR isn't exactly ready to be considered consumer-friendly. Uh, one of the better... Um, one of the better terms I've heard used for them is privilege glasses because they are quite prohibitive in cost. They are prohibitive in, you know, if you, you know, if your eyes, if you have issues with your eyes, glasses do fit underneath. It's not the most comfortable. There are, there are a lot of things that might prevent someone from using it, but there's still, it's still a very interesting thing. Um, 
As with everything, it's likely that the technology is going to become more accessible as time goes on, provided, of course, that it doesn't just fold up and go away, which I think is a very distinct possibility. You look at some motion controls for certain games, and I mean, they're just not around anymore. Or um, the Nintendo version of a VR headset, which gave everyone migraines. Um, it seems like game developers are being cautious with the work putting in, being put into VR games, creating fun showcases of what can be done, rather than games that might convince someone to purchase the rather expensive hardware, and I kind of understand the hesitation. As trends and fads in gaming and media can come and go unpredictably, uh, and to produce a game costs a significant amount of money, like I said, uh, the gallery costs near a million dollars to make. Um, so only to release that and to have the platform completely vanish is a risk that many aren't willing to take, and it's hard to fault them for that, really. Uh, that said, if more developers took a chance on a high-quality immersive experience in the way that Cloudhead is, you might actually see VR take off and have some serious staying power. Uh, at this point, it's worth checking out. I would keep an eye out and, and really be aware of advances which will undoubtedly continue to be made. In the meantime, the gallery is an extremely impressive piece of gaming and the amazing and it's amazing to think that Cloudhead Studios is located so close and is working so and is working on something so fundamentally interesting and cool. Um, again, I'm not, I haven't seen anything that justifies a $1,200 price tag because that's an obscene amount of money for a video game headset. And the thing is, if you don't, especially with the Vive, which is 1200 on their website, uh, if you don't have a PC that can play it, then it's useless. So you've got, you know, a few thousand more in putting together a solid gaming PC. It's an expensive endeavor, but it's definitely a cool one. And if you have the extra cash, please buy one for me, um, uh, also, <laughs> um, and please check out cloudheadgames.ca for more information about them and if you have a VR headset play the gallery I believe it's coming to the Oculus soon so there you go check it all out it's fabulous moving right along from that to something else let's have a look at another one of my picks from the September roundup this is the next album that we're going to look at um, is A Tribe Called Reds We Are The Hallucination if you haven't heard me uh, gush about this yet I mean here it comes again so A Tribe Called Red is absolutely amazing and one of the few acts in dubstep that's doing something interesting with the genre uh, combining elements of dubstep hip hop and traditional aboriginal music creates something that is genuinely unlike anything else in electronic music today if you're a fan of this kind of music, then you should already have this playing. And if not, it might be time to give it a chance. There's so much to like about this album, so you need to get it. Uh, I think, you know, we all, we hear a lot of dubstep and you know, matter, no matter what the hardcore fans of whatever artists say, it does start to get pretty samey. And so A Tribe Called Red is a breath of fresh air in a genre that basically all sounds the same. Um... I can't say enough how much I like this album, so we're going to play a song from it. This is the song is called The Virus. We'll be back when it's over. The people, the people, the people, the people. The virus took on many shapes. The elk, the antelope, the elephant, the deer, the mineral, the iron, the copper, the colt, and the rubber, the coffee, the cotton, the sugar, the people, the people, the people, the people. The germ traveled faster than the bullet. They harvest the mountainside, protect the crops, herd the cattle. The people, the people, the people, the people, the people. The women and children were separated from the men. They are divided us according to the regional filters of their minds. The violence of arrogance crawls 
into the air, nestles into the geospatial cortex. We are not a conquered people. called red the virus from their new album we are the hallucination honestly just you just need it in your life so get it because it's fantastic our exceptional copy editor diana pearson is also the wonderful voice behind the nav's brand new sex positive column called dirty in the nav uh, and this week she received a question about overcoming sexual trauma. She was also kind enough to record her response and thoughts on the subject and so I'm going to play that recording for you. Um, I feel like it goes without saying that this segment of the show may deal, does deal with some mature themes. So please listen responsibly or intelligently or um, anything you would like. If you do have thoughts about this, uh, her advice, please feel free to let me know. Um, you can uh, you can interact with me as I said with the hashtag 
hashtag masthead radio on Twitter. That works on Facebook too. I haven't really checked the Facebook to see if there is one, but you can use that as well. You can also email me at themastheadradio at gmail.com. And you can, of course, email Diana at column at gmail.com. Um, yeah. So I'm going to just, I'm just going to get right into this and let her speak because she's honestly more qualified than I. So here it is. This is the first ever recorded segment of Dirty in the Nav, and uh, we'll be back when it's finished. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to The Masthead, which is the Navigator's radio show through CHLY. My name is Diana Pearson, and I am the copy editor for The Navigator, which means I get to look for all of the spelling and grammar mistakes before the paper gets published, which is super fun for me. But I am also, uh, this year I am the sex columnist, so that means that every two weeks when the newspaper comes out, I get to answer all of your questions related to sex and sexuality. So questions, concerns, curiosities, send them all my way. And uh, my email is, which it sounds like it may not be the right email, but it is. It's column at the nav.ca. So that's C-O-L-U-M-N at the nav.ca. And uh, you can send me your anonymous questions about sex and sexuality, and I would be happy to answer them. So uh, the column is called Dirty in the Nav, and this week I answered a question that one of our readers had about overcoming sexual trauma. So the question was, my last relationship was abusive and there was an instance of sexual violence. Since then, I have found a new caring and understanding partner, but because of my past trauma, I feel I can't give my new partner oral pleasure because my throat will close up unexpectedly. I have had panic attacks even though I know my partner is respectful, loving, and understanding of my limits. Do you have any tips on coping with and overcoming this past sexual trauma? So this question uh, is a really interesting question and I I think that there are a lot of people who can relate to these instances unfortunately and so um, what I want to say before I I read the answer to you that I gave to this reader is that I am not an expert. Um, I was a sex educator for several years so I am familiar with I'm familiar with answering these kinds of questions, but I am not an expert, so I just wanted to preface that before I answer the question. Uh, But the question I gave is as follows. Uh, So sexual trauma provokes symptoms such as dissociation, avoidance, flashbacks, feelings of guilt or shame, fear, emotional numbing, and problems with orgasm. So your throat closing up could be an expression of your body's physical and psychological trauma. Time, space, slowness, care, and mindfulness are all essential as you heal from your ex's actions. If you haven't already, you might like to check out VIU's Wellness Clinic, which is in Building 200 at Vancouver Island University, uh, which offers free counseling to students. If you're looking for healing work, I highly encourage you to check out Sexological Body Work with Alfie Dylan Shaw, who works on Gabriola Island. So it's wonderful that your new partner is respectful, understanding, and loving. Sex, when practiced respectfully, is a communication between two or more people. I hope your new relationship will be an opportunity to rebuild feelings of trust and intimacy, which were compromised by your ex's actions. You might also consider seeking support from a trusted friend or family member. Thank your new partner for their patience and ask for continued patience as you rebuild a safe sexual environment together. Uh, Have you considered writing a list of sexual boundaries together? What about making a list of yes, no, and maybe sexual activities? 
Taking time to write these lists with your partner will bring you both awareness of the pace at which you'd like to rebuild safety in sex. Ask for reassurance from your partner that saying no at any point is welcomed and taken seriously. Revisiting sexual memories could be painful and writing a list might be too. Be gentle on yourself as you work slowly towards healing. Sexual trauma can be triggered by a specific sexual act, sex position, smell, sensation, word, or even phrase. If you experience this, stop and take time to identify that trigger. Start slow. When you're ready to perform oral sex, you might ask your partner to keep his hands back. Choosing a position that puts you in a dominant position might be helpful as well. Practicing mindfulness is often recommended by sex therapists as a way to reconnect with your body's pleasures. Mindfulness often, or mindfulness involves paying attention to your thoughts, your bodily sensations, and it can be very helpful in sexual activity. You can practice mindfulness while doing a physical activity such as walking, swimming, doing yoga, or e even eating a piece of chocolate. You might also try this in a sexual situation. How about a quiet night to yourself to explore your body? Masturbation could be a really great way to reconnect with your body's arousal process, and doing this solo means you are in control. It is absolutely possible to bounce back from sexual trauma. Some statistics say it takes on average three months, but everyone's healing journey is different. So when I answered this question, um, I included a couple of books for recommended reading. Uh, the first book I found was a book called Healing Sex, A Mind-Body Approach to Healing Sexual Trauma. Uh, this was written by Stacey Haynes in 2007, and it, it's, it's a really great book that, that, is, that really explains well the process of what happens when people experience sexual trauma and is a real step-by-step -step and a really thorough look at how to overcome that trauma slowly, thoroughly, and in a really sex-positive way. Um, so it's a great great book and I highly recommend it. Uh, the second book is called Finding and Revealing Your Sexual Self, A Guide to Communi Communicating About Sex by Libby Bennett and Ginger Holkser. Holkser. <laughs> In particular, uh, chapter three looks like a really great book. Um, I took a look at it and, or it looks like a really good chapter. Um, and this, for VIU students, if, you, um, if you've got access to the VIU library, this book is available online. So you can just um, go sign into your VIU account and you can uh, take a look at the whole book online if you like. Uh, so before I finish off with, uh, with my contribution to the masthead this week, I'd like to just say that uh, applying direct or indirect force to a sexual partner without their consent is classified as sexual assault under Canada's criminal code. Uh, you can read more about this at www.sexassault.ca. Uh, so feeling like you cannot say no because of your partner's controlling behaviors is a technique called coercive control. Uh, this experience that the reader, um, that the reader you know, asked, asked for advice about. Um, this, this experience highlights the statistic that only 50% of acts of sexual violence between spouses and only 10% between non-spouses are reported to police. Um, if you are in crisis or if you have a friend who is in crisis, uh, do not hesitate to call Nanaimo's Haven Society 24-hour crisis line at 1-888-756-0616.
And uh, I, I, once again, I'd like to thank all of you for listening to The Masthead this week. And I would like to invite you all to send your questions, concerns, and curiosities about sex and sexuality to myself, Diana Pearson. And uh, my email is column at the nav.ca. That's column at the nav.ca. And um, yeah, do feel free to send me questions that you've got about anything related to sex, and I would be happy to answer them. And, uh, and as always, the questions remain anonymous, and uh, your name and your identifying information will never be, uh, will never be published in the Navigator. All right, have a great afternoon, and uh, enjoy the rest of the show. Thanks so much, Brendan, for having me. And a tremendous thank you to you, Diana, for recording that for me. Um, I just wanted to add one more book to the to her reading list for you guys. The um, the one I would like to recommend comes from 2015. It is called "I Am Not a Slut: Slut Shaming in the Age of the Internet" by Leora Tannenbaum. Uh, I just finished reading it, and it had me pulling my hair out at some at some moments. But it's a really important perspective for men and for women to to understand the sort of gender and sexual politics that go into just about every decision that is made by women. Um, and it's it's important. I think it's a really important book. I think that everyone should read it. So do it. That's your homework from the masthead. Uh, deal with it. Uh, I also wanted to share a couple of things. So. <laughs> Sexual trauma, like the one that the person who wrote in uh, is talking about, are, is extremely common. And the the horrifying thing is that it there is so little reporting, as Diana touched on in her piece. So of every 100 instances of, um, of sexual assault, only six are reported to police. That is not nearly enough. The other thing is that one in four North American women will be assaulted, sexually assaulted during their lifetime. 25% of women. Again, staggeringly high when you really look at it. And so I, I think for everyone, understanding that these statistics are, are as high as they are, it's so important to remember when you meet and interact with new people that they may have a trauma that they're not talking to you about. They have, you know, it's, it's so important to be mindful. And, and Diana talks a lot about this being as mindfulness and respect. And it needs to be present all the time and keeping these statistics in mind keeping this information in mind can help with that it can help to to help you understand what might be going on with somebody um so you know do some research do read the things that she suggested read i am not a slut read and understand um and it might help with attitudes towards towards women and sexuality and and sexual assault as well it's um it's a Oh, there's, there's, I don't have enough time on this show to t to go through it, and I feel deeply underqualified to do so. So, please, uh, you know, do yourself a favor and understand more. And um, one more thing: if you are in crisis, you can also reach out to the Vancouver Island Crisis Line one eight 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 four nine four three eight eight eight, and I strongly encourage you to do so. Um, Haven Society is an amazing resource for um, for women trying to get out of abusive situations, and that's one hundred percent. Call them. Um, but if you need some emotional support or you're not really sure what's available to you, the Vancouver Island Crisis Line, 1-888-494-3888. They will, um, they will do their best to point you in the right direction. So please, um, to please do call them. Um, I, there's, no, there's no good way to transition out of that, so I'm just going to do it awkwardly. And uh, we're going to do another... Another pick from the best five albums from September. 
This time it is Against Me's Shape Shift with me. So if you're not familiar with Against Me, last year they or they are a, a punk band who's been around for a while, but la, in 2014 they released the album Transgender Dysphoria Blues uh, and was hands down the best album that I heard that year. Uh, it was released after their lead singer um, went over, went through a um, came out as transgendered and and had uh, and yeah is now living as a woman um the album deals with a lot of things that punk albums don't deal with which you know like being trans so we've talked about this a little bit with bands like gloss it's it's another it's an issue that in in punk and in in metal and in rock they don't seem to want to talk about and so it it faces it head on um the that album tells the story of a trans sex worker and i strongly recommend listening to it Uh, their new album shapeshift with me is also fabulous um so I was eager to see what Laura and Against Me would come out with next. The Shapeshift with me is a satisfying follow-up to Blues, but it does seem to lack some of that punch that came with the last album. It's still unapologetic in its subject matter, and it's a fabulous album all around. The only complaint that I make is that it's not quite as groundbreaking as as Transgender Dysphoria Blues, which isn't really a fair complaint to have against any album. Uh, so, that I mean, if that's my big issue with it, it's... That should speak to the quality of it, I would hope. So we're going to play this one. This song is called Boyfriend from Against Me's album, Shapeshift With Me. And we'll be back. Well, then we'll, we'll be back and then we're going to commercials. So uh, stay tuned.
Against Me from their album Shapeshift with me. The song was called Boyfriend. That is my uh, my third pick for best albums of, of September. Uh, you can follow along with those in the paper, I guess, if you want. Um, did you guys know you could get newspapers from right here at the station? That's right. You can get the new issue of The Navigator right here at CHLY. So if you're just not sure where to find it, that's where you find it. It's a pretty good plan. Whew, all right, we got uh, we got another uh, another minute or so here, uh, and well, I'm going to take this time to go to a commercial break. So thank you guys so much for listening to the first hour. I hope you'll stick with me into the second. Coming up, we have an interview with Michael McDonald, who has a book coming out called Playing for Change. That is right. You're going to hear uh, the wonderful Diana Pearson uh, talk about that again. You are also going to hear my uh, my guide through the the spooky season as i as i tell you what movies and podcasts and books you should get on right now and scare yourself stupid so all that and plenty more coming up on the next hour of the show after this i may be crossing the art director at the navigator newspaper and you're listening to 101.7 fm chly welcome to the nanaimo crime of the week brought to you by nanaimo crime stoppers and the faculty of international education at vancouver island university each week, a VIU international student will profile an unsolved crime in Nanaimo. If you have information on this crime, contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. Aziz al-Mustama, Jareemat Hadha al-Sbu'a. Fi al-Tasa'a min September, hawaali al-Sa'a al-Thamina masa'an, fi Shara Country Club Drive, ta'aradat fata'a fi al-Khamisa Ashar min umriha, ila muhawalat khatf, wa dhalika indama hawala rajul wasafathu bi abiyad al-Bashara, mutawassata al-Qama, hawaali sitat aqdam, adhafiruhu qadira, يرتدي جاكيت بقبعة لونها أسود أو رمادي وبنطال جنز حاول خطفها وسحبها إلى الغابة الواقع خلف كالتاير ولكنها صرخت وقاومت واستطاعت بحمد الله الفرار منه إذا كان لديك أي معلومات الرجاء الاتصال على الرقم المجاني 1-800-222-8477 For more information on this crime and others in the Nanaimo region please visit NanaimoCrimeStoppers.com Hello, my name is Selikia. I'm from the Chiminis First Nations here in Ladysmith, BC. My English name is Buffy David. I am the co-host of a new First Nations radio show called I invite you to tune in for local First Nations music, interviews, stories, and culture. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 10 a.m. to CHLY's First Nations program, CM Na Stikwelmo, my fellow Native honored people. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 10 a.m., CM Na Stikwelmo. The Radio Malaspina Society, the nonprofit society set up to run CHOI Radio, is having its annual general meeting on October 25th at VIU University, Building 355, Room 203. Doors open at 5.30, call to order at 6 p.m. As well as the regular business of an AGM as prescribed by our Constitution and Bylaws and the Societies Act, the Board of Directors is bringing forward several special resolutions for consideration and ratification by the membership. The resolutions are part of an iterative process to bring our Constitution and bylaws in line with the new Societies Act and our broadcast license. 
Details of the changes can be viewed at the station or at chly.ca forward slash AGM hyphen 2016. All paid up community members and current VIU students are entitled to vote at the AGM. Hope to see you all there. Hi, this is Diana Pearson from Dirty in the Nav, and you're listening to The Masthead on CHLY. All right, welcome back. Thank you for uh, for continuing to join me here in the second hour of the show. Whoa, we have got so much more stuff to talk about. So uh, let's move right along into kind of a bigger segment here, which is an interview that Diana recently did with um, author Michael mcdonald uh he has a new book coming out called playing for change and i apologize if that's wrong but i'm sure i will be immediately corrected in the interview so we're gonna just get right to it because i've got a lot of stuff to cover and this is um it's a long interview so i hope you're excited i'm excited um and we'll be back when she's finished again over to you diana Good morning. My name is Diana Pearson and I am a copy editor and columnist for The Navigator. I'm really happy to be here today with Michael McDonald from McEwen University, who is going to talk about his new book that has just been published called Playing for Change, Music Festivals as Community Learning and Development. Good morning. It's nice to have you here. It's nice to be here. (laughs) So, Um, First of all, I want to thank Brendan for having us on the show. Uh, Brendan is very dedicated to The Navigator and does a great job every week of bringing some great news stories to uh, the Nanaimo community. So here we are. Uh, So what I wanted to talk to you today about, Michael, is, of course, your book. Um, Mm -hmm. So I wanted to say uh, you had a great book launch last Wednesday, October 5th at VAU. Is that right. right? That's right. It was organized by the masters in, in community planning mm-hmm. and uh um i released the book it was published uh from peter lang um which is uh, an academic press mm-hmm. in new york city and it was was published in um in august the canadian release uh is being handled through the distribution i should say is being handled by the university of toronto press and um when the uh, the book was released, I was in conversation with some folks at VIU, and uh, it was suggested that it would, I was asked if I would want to come and, and release the book here, and the, the Masters in Community Planning uh, left at the opportunity to do it. I was, I was really excited to, uh, to do that, and uh, it happened. So uh, <laughs> we were here last Wednesday and um, had a really nice, really nice... Um, invitation and it was really nice to give give about an hour a little over an hour long uh, lecture on the 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 content for playing for change and then we had a really nice question and answer period that went on for quite some time yeah, it was it was really fun cool so do you want to tell us about your book because yeah. it's obviously it's about music festivals in Canada yes so tell us more well it started as a research project around music festivals but then it didn't take very long before realizing that I, as an ethnomusicologist, which is what I am, which is basically an anthropologist that studies music, I realized that the um, that most of the research done on music festivals looked at them in ways that didn't jive with what I was seeing. Mm, what do you mean by that? Well, 
a lot of the the older research looked at music festivals as a form of ritual, mm-hmm. which they are absolutely. But what I was seeing in these contemporary music festivals were less um, were less like rituals than other festivals. So, mm-hmm. for instance, some of the other festivals that would have been studied would have been like um, a community traditional music festival, mm-hmm. like uh, getting together, like an accordion festival, like. Um, uh, traditional mm-hmm. fiddle festival, like um, the bluegrass festival in Coombs, um, like the bluegrass festival in Coombs, for instance. Yeah, yeah, exactly like mm-hmm. that. But these festivals, um, while many of them were called folk festivals, but not all of them. Mm-hmm. Some of them were just called music festivals. They were. They had more diverse music. They had a very complex mix of professional musicians with with local musicians. They were um, fairly large. Um, they were professionalized. Um, they were run by not-for-profit organizations, and uh, they had a very specific history that was different than than some of the traditional music festivals mm-hmm. that were based on on music solely. Um, these festivals had more of a social mission. And it was the social mission that I thought was really interesting. So mm-hmm. I, I found I noticed that there was basically two different kinds of social missions. So I, I grouped them into two different two different large groups. One of them, uh, one large group, I called the urban festivals, mm-hmm. which was uh, the model for them was started by a guy named Mitch Padalik in uh, in the nineteen seventies, mm-hmm. and the first one was the Winnipeg. Uh, folk music festival and then not long after Mitch traveled I think two years later Mitch traveled to Vancouver and start and helped to start the Vancouver music festival and then after that he was influential in starting the Edmonton and Calgary and influenced the creation of the Canmore music festival and a number of others wow so Mitch was involved in a lot he was involved in a lot of the festivals Mm -hmm. yeah but then around the same time, there's a whole other group of festivals um, that were started by uh, people who weren't involved in the music industry. Mitch was. Mitch was involved in the music industry in the 1960s mm-hmm. in, in Toronto, uh, an area of Toronto called Yorkville, which was the Greenwich Village of Canada. What's the Greenwich Village? Greenwich Village was a, an area in New York City mm-hmm. where uh, the folk revival had its, had its epicenter. Where, Got it. Where people like Bob Dylan um, mm. and Joan Baez and all of the, the major figures of the folk music scene were all there. And it was also it was the center of the hippie movement. It was, it was, it was like that. Okay, that's a term I should know. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so the Yorkville was Canada's... Uh, was Canada's Greenwich Village. It was in Toronto. Got so uh, Kensington Market uh, area mm-hmm. of, of Toronto. Um, Mitch was involved in running uh, a very popular um, folk music club. He did the booking for the folk music club there. And then he got involved, after leaving that, he got involved with the Trotskyists. Mm-hmm. So Trotsky was, um, during the Russian Revolution, Trotsky was Lenin's partner. Trotsky mm-hmm. ran the, the Red Army. And um, after, the, after the revolution was successful, and not long after, Lenin died, and Stalin came to power, and Trotsky was run out of Russia. 
and he was he spent the rest of his life running from the Stalinists mm-hmm. and um, so people who were socialists or communists but didn't back Stalin many of them were called Trotskyists okay so Trotsky was um, he was killed in Mexico um, by by Russian spies and Mitch was part of the Canadian Trotskyists and so he was he spent a good part of the 60s basically all of the 60s after the folk revival um, going around to um, universities around Canada mm-hmm. organizing students um, uh, in ban the bomb movements in social justice movements in peace activism and youth activism mm-hmm. um, and getting members for the Trotskyist party okay. so he did that until the early 1970s and then stopped doing that because of um, because the party kind of fell apart mm-hmm. and Mitch decided that he wanted to use the skills that he learned in political organizing for the music festival mm-hmm. because he, he loved folk music and he loved playing the banjo and he wanted to bring his politics and his music together mm-hmm. so he did that for the folk music festivals now around this <laughs> there's a whole other group of young people who are leaving the cities they're called back to the landers okay this is in the 70s this is the 70s okay so they're leaving toronto and and you know mississauga and hamilton and ottawa and montreal and quebec and even leaving um, big cities in the united states whether it's san francisco san diego detroit and moving to western canada mm-hmm. and moving into small places in western canada and in starting in the mid 1970s and picking up steam into the early 1980s, um, they uh, f- became part of very small rural communities in Canada, mm-hmm. and they started music festivals as a way of raising money for the local community, as a way of socializing. Some of them started music festivals to fund their own schools or their own health clinics or you know, all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So they're the, the Back to the Lander festivals. So okay. in Western Canada, starting in the mid-1970s and continuing to today, we have folk and roots music festivals that are either connected to the, you know, the lineage of the Trotskyists and the, uh, or they're connected to the Back to the Landers and the hippies. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I wonder if people who go to music festivals in Canada know this. Probably not. No. And that was so. That was <laughs> what was so interesting about writing the book, is that even the people involved in the contemporary festivals didn't necessarily know their history. Yeah. Uh, so the the like a lot of the back to the lander festivals are now run by increasingly professionalized boards, and they mm. may not even be aware of the, you know, the political founding of some of the festivals. Mm. Okay. Um, and likewise with with like Winnipeg for instance, may not even be aware of its Mm. very radical political roots. Mm. Um, Well, I think that that would be, I I feel like I'm in the same boat where um, I volunteered for the Calgary Folk Fest two years in a row and Mitch Mitch began the Calgary Folk Fest, is Mm -hmm. that right? Yeah, he was part of it, yeah. And um, one of the things that I loved about volunteering for the Calgary Folk Festival was how communal it felt. So, you know, for me, I, I would, I would, sign up to volunteer and you know it kind of you know you thought oh is this going to be a lot of work and then it was really wonderful where you'd have maybe eight 12 hour 12 hours worth of volunteering in four days and 
but you would have all your meals provided and it was it was really nice to volunteer as a part of you know they're part of however many volunteers 800 or 700 volunteers everyone was taken care of everyone took care of each other and uh you know you kind of felt like you were part of something so does that fit into your of the you know does that fit into the research of your book oh absolutely yeah the one of the things that mitch is very proud of is the way he took the festival model as it was mm -hmm. developed by um specifically by the folks who ran the mariposa folk festival in mm -hmm. ontario and he took that model and he changed how the volunteer structure worked. Mm -hmm. So he made he made it so that the volunteers were central to the festival. They weren't to the side of the festival mm -hmm. at all. As a matter of fact, being a volunteer in Mitch's design is uh, is a coveted thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and he would often say that uh, he would rather give people tickets if all they wanted to do was volunteer just to get in for free he wasn't interested in that at all he wanted volunteers who wanted to make a contribution okay. to the building of the festival and that was that was centrally important to him hmm. and he claims that not only is that important but um so this is this is for all of those people out there trying to figure out a way to start a business mm -hmm. um, that requires, uh, you know, a lot of social capital. Mitch says that you can basically multiply um, the number of volunteers uh, by 10, and that'll give you the number of people that are going to show up to your festival. So he, he very strategically mapped out the number of volunteers that were necessary to have a festival that was going to be um so if it's a seven if 700 mm -hmm. volunteers it'll be seven eight thousand people oh if it's going to be 800 volunteers it'll be eight thousand people hmm. thousand okay. volunteers ten thousand people that kind of thing okay yeah and that's cool. and, th and that has roughly worked out huh that's really interesting yeah it is really interesting because yeah. it's it's basically the same kind of thing as uh you know, um, well, in the book I call it social capital. Mm -hmm. It's um, it's it's like the Facebook likes you have. Mm -hmm. If you have uh, ten Facebook likes, mm -hmm. that means a uh, hundred people are going to show up to your to your event. That's that's basically the, the the kind of math that Mitch was doing. But obviously, back in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, when they uh, when we he didn't have the benefit of, of Facebook to to do that kind of. Hmm marketing got it and i think it is different today it where is yeah. if you have a hundred it's the opposite on facebook i think yeah you're probably just, right just saying <laughs> it probably is the a, opposite yeah you have a hundred people say they're going to attend and then 10 show up and so it's the opposite so mitch's model i think probably worked better <laughs> yeah probably yeah it probably did yeah, it's as been a much more successful as a predictor of something yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> Okay, uh, so this is a, you know, for those listening, uh, if you uh, are interested in music festivals, if you're interested in community learning and development, uh, this is a wonderful book. Also, if you're interested in um, anthropology or you're interested in Canadian history, music history, this is a great book. It covers all sorts of, well, it, it covers a really important part of Canadian history that has not really been documented yet, which is really cool.
So one of the other things that I wanted to bring up with you is um, I wanted to ask you why this is an important contribution, not only to Canadian history, but to community development and to the world as a whole, mm. if we can say the world as a whole. And um, I specifically want to ask you about the introduction to this book. Um, so we're going to use a we're going to use a big fancy term right now. That's called that what what Michael uses is this term called um, predatory Anthropocene. So if you haven't heard, it would be good for you all to go and look up what is called Anthropocene, which is a term used to define the fact that if I hope I get this right, that humans are now making. Uh, a significant impact on Earth systems. Is that right? That's right. Okay. So tell me about why you added the term predatory to Anthropocene, and can you also tell me about the connection between predatory Anthropocene and music festivals in Canada? Absolutely. <laughs> so Anthropocene, just to, to be specific, Anthropocene <laughs> is a, a name that geologists are currently applying to the present epoch so if you okay. can imagine that um the holocene which was the previous epoch mm -hmm. um, lasted for about the last eleven thousand years okay that epoch lines up with the whole history of human civilization so what an epoch is is the the name given to a particular geological formation. Mm -hmm. So there was something, um, there was, you know, the earth entered a period of a certain kind of climate stability mm -hmm. that allowed for the flourishing of human civilization. All right. And that has been incredibly successful for us as humans. <laughs> now, in the last, uh, in the la since about 1850, human population uh, and technological expansion, so it lines up with the Industrial Revolution, um, has taken off mm -hmm. nearly exponentially. So we go from having about a billion people alive at any time to now seven billion people alive. Mm -hmm. Now, that increase in population and an increase in technology is has created a situation, as you said, uh, just a moment ago that now humans are making a geological impact on mm -hmm. the earth so humans are now part of climate and weather which we never were before okay so that that makes a major distinction so we go from being the holocene and all of human civilization to now which okay. is called the anthropocene mm -hmm. and so we don't know what the anthropocene is yet it's just getting named right now and the re the research that has been going on has shown that um, there's been major impacts on earth systems okay many earth systems by humans mm. but i call it predatory anthropocene because those impacts are not shared by everybody on the planet okay the we have to share them in the in the sense that we live with them but we're not sharing them in the sense that we created them. Okay, so some some cultures or some countries are not contributing to this uh, Anthropocene equally. Correct. Not all are contributing Correct. equally. Okay. Yeah, the countries that uh, have been the center of industrial expansion. Okay. So a lot of countries in the EU. Okay. Or in the United States. United States. For Canada. Instance, 
Canada to a much lesser extent because okay. of our population, but it has increased dramatically since the opening of the the the, uh, the oil sands. Mm-hmm. Um, don't they contribute? Doesn't don't the oil ca- sands contribute four percent to the global? Yeah, a uh, very significant yeah impacts. Yeah, absolutely. Human impacts. <laughs> yeah, a very you know, yeah. global carbon impacts. Yeah. yeah. So that's a lot. That's a for lot. a very teeny tiny part of the population. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, very small part of the population okay. is impacting. Um, so it's those people involved in uh, in in the. Uh, economic and technological systems that are making the vast amount of impact on the earth system mm-hmm. is very small compared to all the people on the planet you know mm-hmm. uh, occupy wall street was talking about the one percent mm-hmm. where in reality it's more like the point one percent who are controlling the vast number the vast mm-hmm. amounts of wealth in the world mm-hmm. and and they're the quote-unquote captains of industry that i point to as being the uh, um, what makes up predatory anthropocene okay Okay, but even though it's the point one percent that is controlling what you call predatory Anthropocene, um, a lot of us are complicit in that idea. Yes, so a lot of us are, you know, maybe unintentionally contributing to human impact on the earth. Yeah, like I mean, this is um, this is a really new thing. So. For the last couple of hundred years, the idea of making vast amounts of wealth was never equated with ecological degradation. No. It was just making vast amounts of wealth. Mm-hmm. So those those people who have been shaping predatory Anthropocene have been doing it in such a way to make huge wealth um, from our consumption. So we're all in it together, right? Yes. Like the... the uh, 70% of gross national product in the United States is done through consumption. It's from mm-hmm. people buying things. So immediately after 9-11, for instance, George W. Bush said, keep shopping. The reason why he said keep shopping is ah. because the the American uh, the, the American economy is based on shopping. Yeah, um, and that's hap- That's true in, in increasingly true in other parts mm-hmm. of the world. Mm-hmm. China is becoming a consumption economy. Canada is a consumption economy. A lot of the major major countries in the EU are consumption economies. America is the largest example of it in the world, but that's the direction we're that's the direction we're heading mm-hmm. in and it seems to me that consumption economies are the predatory anthropocene got it so now your other question was what does this research have to do with predatory anthropocene yes. well a lot of the back to the land festivals that were started in the 70s were early responses to the awareness that we were collectively having negative impacts on the the environment of the planet, the mm-hmm. the con, you know the contemporary environmental movement started in the in the sixties, the late sixties and seventies mm-hmm. with university students. A lot of those university students, many of those university students, became back to the landers mm-hmm. and went and started these festivals. So a lot of the festivals that happen in rural communities in Western Canada, not only do they do um, do music and do all sorts of things but they're also experiments in living collectively and mm-hmm. many of them have parts of the festival dedicated to new kinds of technologies environmental technologies solar panels um wind 
um, mm-hmm. new ways of, of thinking about consumption or, or ways of encouraging people to consume less. Entire festivals based around the idea of living in a connected way with the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these so these music festivals are contributing directly to fighting what I'm calling predatory Anthropocene. Um, but at the festivals, so why I came up with the, the term predatory Anthropocene, because at the festivals, we were talking about making contributions to the planet, but we had a hard time. Like we knew we were talking about a struggle with something, mm-hmm. but we had a hard time coming up with a name for it. So Got when it. I was, it was on my mind when I was writing this book and, uh, um, I'm, you know, trying the term predatory Anthropocene to see if anybody, you know, uses it. <laughs> Well, so far it's been super relevant for me as I as I try and sort out what's going on because sometimes it does feel like the period that we're in, um, we are in a period of climate crisis, um, you know, economic precarity, I would say. And um, this term for me has been super helpful in kind of understanding because sometimes it does feel like we're in this, 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 I don't know, like this race for consumption that is it's sometimes hard to put your finger on so for me it's been really helpful although i will admit that even the term anthropocene has taken me a while to wrap my head around but now i think the the concept is becoming more and more well known more common um so it might even be easier for readers to read the introduction now as opposed to a year or two years or five years ago even though you say that there are there's a whole bunch of people who you know were in the back to the land movement who are you know those values are continuing today so i think the term is super relevant and could be really useful i hope so yes me too <laughs> we'll see <laughs> we'll see um so uh, i'll just for those of you listening i just want to once again mention that we are interviewing michael mcdonald M- not McDonald, Michael McDonald of McEwen University, an ethnomusicologist who is a professor at McEwen University in Edmonton. Um, and we have been talking about your new book, Playing for Change, Music Festivals as Community Learning and Development. So uh, if anybody is interested in ordering this wonderful book, which is not only beautiful uh, in cover, which has, you'll, you'll take take a look at the artwork, uh, which is done by an, an artist named Arthur Tu. Um, and it's a beautiful piece of work. Um, so the cover is beautiful, but not only the cover, but the content is absolutely fantastic. Super relevant for anybody interested in music, uh, Canadian history, anthropology, community learning and development, and or social change. So there's lots of good stuff in this book. And um, all right. So before we say goodbye for today, w- oh, I've got one more question for you. Um well, in just in a short snippet, what can you say about this book that would be will be one thing that you would take away from this book as a reader in the Nanaimo community? Is there one thing that you would encourage readers to take away from this book? That's the, probably a hard question. That, that is a hard question. <laughs> the, one, the one thing that I would like people to take away from the book is the... I think it's how many different threads of history and social kind of social practice and economics economic practice and philosophy um, that are actually all come together in a community event Mm -hmm. Um, we tend to 
think of community events as if they're simply celebrations. And if anything, uh, that's a takeaway from this book is that they're not, they're never simply celebrations. They're, they're always um, incredibly rich and complex uh, events that require a lot of a lot of attention mm-hmm. and a lot of focus and I think um, as we prepare to engage with um, not only climate instability but increasing economic precarity mm-hmm. um, we need to think about the ways that celebrating rituals uh, collectively as a society um, can prepare us and help train us to become um to contribute to community resiliency mm-hmm. and if 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 what i think is coming is indeed coming resiliency is going to be uh it's going to have to become central to our education practices mm-hmm. and i don't think there i think i don't think only schools are going to be the places where that's going to be learned mm-hmm. i think community organizations are also going to have to play a significant make a significant contribution mm-hmm. to building resiliency and that's why i think community learning um is going to be so important cool that's fantastic all right well thank you so much for being part of the the navigators radio show today the masthead it's a pleasure thank you for <laughs> inviting me it's wonderful to have you and i'm sure we can talk for hours more about this book we will probably. We will. I'm sure we will. Yeah. I've already had, I've already gotten to read most of the book so far, um, but I'm looking forward to finishing it off and, uh, and then starting from the beginning. <laughs> so uh, for those of you listening, uh, once again, this is Michael McDonald of McEwen University in Edmonton. And uh, the book that he has just published that we've been talking about this afternoon is called Playing for Change, Music Festivals as Community Learning and Development. And this book was published just just brand new published from Peter Lang Publishing, which is an academic publisher who publishes a whole uh, a whole pile of wonderful books. And this is part of the CounterPoints series. So look it up. Check it out. It's called Playing for Change. And I hope you love the book. If you, if you do love it and you want to find out more, uh, you can find out what Michael is up to uh, via Michael. What is your website? MichaelBMcDonaldFilms.com? .ca. .ca. Okay. I'll say that again. MichaelBMcDonaldFilms.ca because as well as an ethnomusicologist, you're also an ethnographic filmmaker. That's, that's a big, that's another big word for us today. So filmmaker. Yes. I'm also a filmmaker. Great. That's fantastic. Uh, Lots of great films on there. So enjoy the book, and I hope you have a wonderful afternoon to all of you listening out there. Thanks again. Thanks, Michael. And thanks to Diana for supplying that fabulous interview with Michael McDonald. Fun fact, you can also get his book on Amazon for $212, just in case you were wondering. Um, It, uh, yeah. So there you go. Uh, Check out his website as well. Uh, and all of the things that were mentioned before. Okay, just going to keep on trucking here because we are running out of time. My next pick on the uh, top five albums of September goes to Every Time I Die, Low Teens. For those of you looking for something that yells back at you, something that really 
something to really invest some angst into, look no further than Low Teens, the most recent album from Every Time I Die. It is a no-nonsense hardcore album from some guys who have been doing this for a long time. It hits hard from minute one and doesn't stop until the album is over. Certainly, this is this pick is fueled by some nostalgia for the band, but it doesn't stop it from being a kick-ass new entry. This song is called I Didn't Want to Join Your Stupid Cult Anyway, and it is from Low Teens. We're going to listen to it, and we will be back. Enjoy. was every time i die i don't want i didn't want to join your stupid cult anyway from their new album low teens all right we are going to talk about makeup that's right we're going to talk about beauty testing uh animal testing with beauty products the article i'm reading is called beauty colon tested and it comes for us for, to us from our wonderful our own wonderful catherine Charbois. And um, I'm gonna I'm gonna share this with you because I think it's important information, and it really should force you to consider the things that you're purchasing before you purchase them. So let's get started. Why don't you wear makeup? I think a bit of mascara would look super cute on you. Those words that started it all for Catherine's growing fascination with makeup. And she says, I didn't have a typical experience when it came to discovering the world of cosmetics. Growing up, my mother was never one to doll herself up, and it never was never really a huge part of my youth when the girls in my grade nine gym class approached me my interest was peaked and for many 
early teens the way people transform the as for many early teens the way people transform themselves with colorful powders pencils and wands was it was completely foreign to me it only occurred to me as i reached early early adulthood to wonder what went into creating makeup not just which shade of cheap eyeliner i wanted to try out next but finding uh, finding pictures of crusty-eyed, red-skinned, patchy-furred bunnies as the result of repeated product testing by makeup companies during my research had me delving deeper into the true meaning of cruelty-free cosmetics. We have seen these images of animals who are tested on, so we all kind of know what she's talking about here. So, issues in makeup production have steadily been hitting for the forefront of the cosmetics world, with a variety of brands now ditching animal testing in favor of human trial and vegan options. These brands have stopped using animal byproducts like horsehair, beeswax, and collagen. Uh, growing awareness of makeup products and practices has consumers turning to non-testing brands and buying makeup from companies who proudly stamp the cruelty-free bunny symbol on their product labels. Yet, taking the company claims of being cruelty-free isn't always so clear-cut. Your money could still be contributing to animal testing. This is where things get a little complicated. For example, there are issues of parent companies who bought who buy or take over a smaller company, keeping both companies separate, some of which are not cruelty-free. These all-powerful companies still use animal testing to test ingredients, affecting the cruelty-free status of their smaller brands by association. Many of the staple cruelty-free cosmetic brands, such as The Body Shop, are now run under L'Oreal, a multi-billion dollar company that does test on animals. L'Oreal, among other parent companies, has had some dubious practices called out by the public and ethical watchdog groups. While they claim not to have tested on animals since 1990, they have done so for new ingredients under European law requirements. Despite this change, the body shop can still claim to be cruelty-free by being a subsidiary to this bigger brand. The body shop opened in the United Kingdom in 1976. Its creator, the late Anita Roddick, focused on social causes that empowered women, encouraged fair trade and ethical consumerism, and opposed animal testing. After the L'Oreal takeover in 2006, the body shop received flack for its apparent hypocrisy with animal rights activists bo uh, protesting the takeover and telling their followers to boycott the chain. The Nature Watch Foundation, a European charity dedicated to the advancement of animal welfare, actively questioned the takeover as it happened, and the late John Rain, the foundation's director, stated in a 20, uh, 2006 interview for The Guardian that if the consumer spending money at the body shop, it could go to animal testing upping the stakes by taking the body shop off nature watch's list of approved cruelty free retailers yikes um so there's a lot to think about there a company owned by another company does in fact does not in fact m you know mean that they are they remain the same um so getting up a little bit more recent on March 11th of 2014, Choice, a consumer watchdog company, discovered that the body shop had products on shelves in the duty-free section of at least two Chinese airports, according to an article in The Guardian. The body shop released a statement that the Beijing and Shanghai airport stores were treated differently than the mainland Chinese mandatory regulation, um, which is that uh, these products be tested on animals, by the way. That is why uh, Lush Cosmetics does not have a presence in China, because there is a legal requirement to test products on animals there. <coughs> Um, the Body Shop is, does not believe that the post-market surveillance tested, testing on animals is applied and the company has no knowledge it has been. So they've essentially washed their hands of the whole thing. The next day, the company's products were pulled from the shelves of the Body Shop after receiving news of the incident. It's unclear whether the company knew about their products being on the duty-free shelves prior to this discovery. 
Choices chief executive Alan Kirkland deplored the company's choice of selling in airports, claiming both L'Oreal and the body shop had been deflecting requests for clarification on the matter. In the same Guardian interview, a body shop spokesperson assured the media that the products sold in China were a short-term thing, adding, if it comes about that there is any reason to be concerned, we will absolutely stay out of the Chinese market. There is a reason to be concerned because there is testing. So you're just pretending not to know, which is all the more frustrating, really. Um, <laughs> well, products sold in airports don't follow the same regulations as required animal testing policy in China. They can still be subject to post-market testing. Criticized heavily for not doing their homework by choice after the airport fiasco, the body shop got messages after the 2014 incident and has stayed out of Chinese markets. Um, stores, except for two company-owned entities, stores selling body shop products but owned separately in Hong Kong and Macau, the body shop still maintains its strict no animal testing policy as stated on its website. Um, and then back to... Catherine, as for myself, I have since stopped buying from the body shop. I dream of a day where cruelty-free cosmetics will be a thing of... Uh, the, the issue of cruelty-free cosmetics will be a thing of the past. With an increased increase in animal activism being done in China, where there are increasing protests, challenges to unethical practices, fighting for the betterment of animal welfare, and works to change testing requirements, I hope that this will become a reality in the next decade. Um, so it's, there's a lot in that to unpack. And one of the things to remember is just because a product is not tested on animals, that does not mean that the ingredients within the product were not tested on animals. So as long as a product itself is not tested, it can be certified. But it doesn't mean that the parent company is not testing or so on and so on and so on. Uh, another great example of this kind of dissonance between companies is have a look at the Dove body positive ads that are trying to that send a message of positivity for women uh, and, and say it doesn't matter what your body looks like and all this kind of stuff. This company that is doing that is also the same company who owns Axe Body Spray, which is essentially encouraging date rapists. So it's really important to keep that in mind when you when you are learning more about uh, about companies. Um <coughs> couple of things here i have a list of cruelty free makeup and some gray area makeup so there are ingredients tested on animals or they use animal products so the cruelty free makeup uh, and cosmetics brands if you are looking for them are anastasia beverly hills barefaced cosmetics ColourPop cosmetics elf cosmetics kat von d beauty my favorite lush cosmetics manic panic two-faced and young blood uh, as for gray area makeup companies, these are owned by parent companies, so it's hard to know what you're getting. Bare Minerals, Burt's Bees, Liz Earl, NYX, NARS, Smashbox, Tarte, The Body Shop, and Urban Decay. So there you go. There's some stuff to think about, <clears throat> and we've only got 15 minutes left in the show. So I'm going to fly through my, um, my Halloween primer. So let's get to it, shall we? October is here. And for some of us, that means absolutely nothing. But for those of you like me who love the season, it means swimming gleefully through an infinite sea of horror movies, books, podcasts, and video games, seeking out scares between now and Halloween. Here are some, some suggestions to help you find some new ways to scare yourself this month. Starting off with movies, I have a few recommendations for you. Number one, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. I know what you're thinking. What about Halloween 1? What about Halloween 2? 
doesn't matter. This Halloween has nothing to do with the with the franchise that you know and love. So, surely many of us, even those who dislike horror, are familiar with the Halloween franchise, or at the very least, the mask and overalls wearing killer Michael Myers. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, is a film that you may be less familiar with because its plot has absolutely nothing to do with any of the other films in the franchise, and doesn't even feature the icon, Mr. Myers. You see, the Halloween series was originally intended to be an anthology, with each film plot uh, being unique and based around Halloween. The first film in, the, in 1978, which we know as Halloween, was so successful uh, that this plan was scrapped to make a second film featuring Michael Myers. An attempt was made to then revitalize this original vision in 1982 with Season of the Witch. Unfortunately, though, it was too late and Season of the Witch sort of disappeared. I recommend it because it is silly, it is fun, and at times a little bit scary. Um... The story is simple. A company called Silver Shamrock has released masks for Halloween, which are very popular. A police officer seeks to uncover a sinister plot. Uh, the officer is played spectacularly by Tom Atkins, and the film was directed by Tommy Lee Wallace, who directed the 1990s miniseries Tim Curry. It's a whole lot of fun. It shouldn't be missed. It's sleazy, it's scary, and it's it's just worth checking out. The next one I recommend is Nosferatu, the 1922 silent classic. This is the granddaddy of all vampire movies and if you haven't seen it there's no reason that you haven't seen it so get your hands on it absolutely um next up alien from 1979 for those of you looking for a little space terror ridley scott's alien is the gold standard in this department owing a lot to the incredible monster design by hr geiger we all know what the xenomorph looks like even if we haven't seen the movie um, Alien Holds Up is one of the scariest films ever made, and on top of being frightening, you also have this rarity and horror, a badass female protagonist in Ripley, played expertly by Sigourney Weaver, who goes on to face off against the terrifying xenomorphs in the subsequent, subsequent sequels. Fun fact for all you people who like fun facts, uh, the chestburster scene in Alien, when the first time an alien bursts out of a guy's chest... Uh, features genuine reactions from all of the actors. Apparently, the actors knew what the scene entailed, but had no idea how it was going to happen. And so, the surprise and and disgust that they they feel and, and show is very much real. Uh, next up is a fabulous movie for those of you looking for something a little bit funnier. What we do in the shadows from 2014. If you're not a huge fan of being scared, here's something a little bit lighter for you. You could do no better than this horror comedy uh, written and directed by Taki Taika Waititi and Flight of the Concord's own Jermaine Clement who both star in the film as well Shadows is a mockumentary that follows four vampire roommates as they go about their daily lives the film is absolutely hilarious and delivers on its premise in the best possible way it does feel like a documentary and even offers up some hilarious if not a bit disturbingly gory moments uh, Concord's fan will also no doubt notice the appearance of Reese Darby, leader of the gang of werewolves, who steals the show in some of the funniest exchanges in the film. And finally, for films, the uh, it says 2014, but it's definitely from the 1990s, so I apologize for that. Uh, 1990s Nightbreed. This is a movie that almost shouldn't exist. In fact, the film studio worked really hard to make sure that it didn't. The version released in 1990 was pared down, chopped up, um, and kind of this bastardized version of Barker of Clive Barker's original film. Um, it was released to very little fanfare. As a result, the movie came and went amidst poor reviews and lackluster audience responses, but it has since gained a bit of a cult following. Recently, there was a director's and extended edition of the film, and it better represents the movie that was that had been intended initially. The film oozes 80s and 90s sensibility and manages to be both cheesy and frightening, much like Barker's other and more well-known film, 
Hellraiser. Watch those movies. Once again, Nightbreed, What We Do in the Shadows, Alien, Nosferatu, and Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. If you were looking for scary movies to scare yourselves, then check those out. I did promise books, but I'm, I'm going to skip over them and just do podcasts. So if you're looking for something a little bit different, audio dramas have really taken on a, a kind of new life, and they've become much more uh, prevalent in podcasting and they are there are some absolutely amazing things the first one to recommend here is the black tapes podcast so the black tapes is a serialized docudrama about one journalist search for the truth her enigmatic subjects mysterious past and the literal and figurative ghosts that haunt them both um, if you've listened to shows like serial this is going to be right up your alley sort of serial with ghosts excellent you can check it out at the black tapes uh, for those of you who like a spooky story, the No Sleep Podcast, a multi-award-winning anthology series of original horror stories, the No Sleep Podcast features a cast of talented voice actors, rich atmospheric music, and sound effects to enhance the frightening tales. The production on this these episodes have become more and more impressive, and the back catalog is huge. If you're a horror fan, you need to check this out. They're sort of little self-contained audio horror movies, and you will love them. You can find that at the thenosleeppodcast.com. And if you need your horror stories to be true, check out Lore. Lore is an award-winning, critically acclaimed podcast about true life scary stories. Our fears have roots. Lore exposes the darker side of history, exploring the creatures, people, and places of our wildest nightmares. Um, the nonfiction is really stands out, and the narration is fabulous. It is one of the strongest podcasts right now and apparently it's also being adapted for television so you want to get in on this before it takes off and you miss the train lorepodcast.com whoa there you go there's some stuff and we got to get to my last pick for best music of september this song or uh, this next album sorry guys i had to really rush that and i'm feeling a little a little out of breath so the last album of september that i recommend is nick cave and the bad seeds skeleton tree this one might even be one of the better of the year uh, nick cave is responsible for one of my favorite songs from a horror film of all time which is red right hand and since i've heard that song i've been intrigued by the haunting and somewhat bizarre nature of cave's songwriting and his voice skeleton tree continues this tradition with some truly beautiful music perfectly exemplifying um, cave's songwriting ability the song is called magneta we will be back to say goodbye after this never knew which way was out Once it was on, it was on and that was that The umbilicus was a faucet that found in rabbit blood and I spun on my wheel Like a laboratory rat
an electrical storm on the bathroom floor, clutching the ball. My blood was full of gags and other people's diseases. My monstrous little memory had swallowed me whole. Officially became the bride of Jesus. In love, in love, in love, you laugh, in love, you move, I move, and one more time with feeling. For love, you love, I love, you love, saw you in heart, and the stars are splashed across the ceiling. Somebody was basically overwhelming. Had such hard blues down there in the supermarket queues. I had a sudden urge to become someone, someone like you, who started out with less than anyone. In love, in love, I love you, love, I love you, love, I move, you move, and one more time with feeling. I love you, love, I love you, love, I'm sown in heart, and all the stars are splashed across the ceiling. All right, that is Magneto from Skeleton Tree by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Unfortunately, we're cutting that just a little early in uh, the interest of getting everything done here on the show. So, quick look at the upcoming events calendar. Um, tonight, you still have time to go and see The Last Shop standing at, during the World Bridger film series on the Nanaimo campus. That is building 356, room 109, from 7 until 10 p.m. by donation. Tomorrow, beginning tomorrow, and then every Friday until the 28th, I believe there are Nanaimo Museum Lantern Tours. Nanaimo Museum, uh, they leave from the museum on 100 Museum Way. They start at 6.30, and they are $15. You have to register online. Um, I picked up my tickets for the 28th. I'm very excited to see what they have to offer. They're taking you on a spooky tour of Nanaimo. 15th, Saturday... Sorry, Saturday the 15th, VIU Men's and Women's Volleyball Home Opener at uh, the VIU Gym uh, at the Nanaimo campus. Women's at 6, men's at 8. 
Um, the 16th, the Nanaimo Theater Group presents Lost in Yonkers, Bailey Studio, 2373 Ross Town Road, 2 p.m., $20. The 17th, but this is actually from the 14th to the 20th, I believe, uh, or 23rd or something, the Rotary used book sale at Nanaimo North Town Center, 4750 Rutherford Road at 10 a.m. It is free to go and have a look. There are lots of great books always. Last thing, Snowden Comedy presents Deborah DiGiovanni, The Port Theater, 125 Front Street, 8 p.m., $30 on the 18th. I will see you there if you are there. And that, my dear friends, is going to be it for the Masthead this week. As always, I want to give credit where credit is due and mention all the amazing people who make this show and the newspaper possible from the navigator our editor-in-chief molly barrio our art director avery crossan our associate editor natalie gates news editor aislin cattell sports and lifestyle editor cole schisler production manager Catherine charlebois graphic designers jessica pearson and zyri hoskins web editor spencer smith social media manager Alyssa dorkson bookkeeper lynn williams business manager christine frannick and copy editor sex columnist and interviewer diana pearson Thank you all so much. And of course, everyone here at CHOY for allowing us to do this show every week. And of course, there's me, your host and arts and entertainment editor, Brendan Barlow. Please remember that The Navigator wants your contributions, your articles, reviews, stories, and everything else just might find their way into the paper, but we can't publish what we don't have. So with that in mind, please send your contributions to editor at the nav.ca. She'll make sure it gets where it needs to go. A few things to keep in mind, section editors reserve the right to edit for length and for content and do not guarantee that your piece will be published. We also pay students only for everything except letters to the editor. So there you go. We want to hear from you. Please take a minute to find the masthead, the navigator, and CHOY on Facebook for updates and to stay in the know. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. It really does help people find us. And finally, please get in touch. The show can't improve without your feedback, and I would love to hear from you. So use hashtag MastheadRadio on Twitter or email me at themastheadradio at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Please join us next week when we will have a brand new issue of The Nav and a whole new section of selection of news and sports for you right here on 101.7 CHLY. And guess what? Sum 41 has a new album out, and we're going to close with one of their songs because who thought they'd ever hear that sentence again? So this song from Sum 41's new album, 13 Voices, is called War, and we'll be back next week. Thank you guys so much. So what am I fighting for? Everything back and more And I'm not gonna let this go I'm ready to settle the score Get ready cause this is war